This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. When you're done with this episode, be sure to head over to our Brothers in Arms. Of course, on Monday, Brandon Legion brings you Horror Wolf 666. On Tuesday, Jackie Smith brings you Into the Necrosphere. And on Thursday, I return with Necromaniacs Horror Podcast. And on Sunday, the gentleman who's accompanying me on this journey into darkness, Carl Hikara, brings you his podcast. Sold Knox. Along Grand Avenue, they've torn the houses down and left emptiness in their place. On one side, a tangle of viaducts, railroad yards, and expressways. A scar of concrete and cinder and iron that divides black slum from student ghetto in downtown Knoxville. On the other side, ascending the ridge, shabby relics of Victorian and Edwardian elegance slowly decaying beneath too many layers of cheap paint and soot and squalor. Most were broken into tawdry apartments, housing for the students at the university that sprawled across the next ridge. Closer to the university, sections had been raised to make rooms for featureless emplacements of asphalt and imitation used brick. Apartments for the wealthier students, but along Grand Avenue, they tore the houses down and left only vacant weed lots in their place. Shouldered by the encroaching kudzu, the sidewalks still ran along one side of Grand Avenue, passing beside the tracks and the decrepit shells of disused warehouses. Across the street, against the foot of the ridge, the long blocks of empty lots rotted beneath a jungle of rampant vine and buried house sites marked by ragged stumps of blackened timbers and low depressions of tumbled-in cellars. Discarded refrigerators and gutted hulks of television sets rusted amidst the weeds and omnipresent litter of beer cans and broken bottles. A green pall over the dismal ruin, the relentless tide of kudzu claimed Grand Avenue. So that was the opening paragraphs of Where Summer Ends by Carl Edward Wagner. And uh, I'm here with uh, with Carl Hakara of the Soul Knox podcast, and we're bringing to you Darkness Weaves, episode number two. How's it going, Carl? Good. How are you doing, Mike? Doing all right, man. And uh, 
yeah, I'm, I'm happy that we're uh, we're getting back into doing this. And for those of you who are just tuning into this, uh, you're, you're saying episode two. Where was episode one? Well, episode so, one was over on Soul Knox. So. That's right, man. So this is a collaboration between Soul Knox and Everything Went Black. And um, we're going to be alternating episodes. And the first endeavor is to cover the short stories of Carl Edward Wagner that were included in the recently republished In a Lonely Place. And uh, that originally was uh, was published in, uh, in 1981. So uh, we're going to be try we're going to try to get as far as we can through. We're going to try to do all of Wagner's material, but there's quite a bit of it. So starting small, we're just going to hit this first book, going to go through all the short stories uh, one at a time, alternating between Soul Knox and, uh, and everything went black. Yep. And um, well, you also had your pilot on uh, on everything went black. So, you know, people can go back and listen to the pilot and listen to the first episode on soul knocks and it's, it's yeah, been a little bit you know yeah the, the pilot kind of gives you all the biographical information about uh carl Edward wagner you know like that he was uh born in knoxville uh he passed away in 1994 and was born in uh in 1945 so uh you can go back and listen to the pot the um the pilot episode to get all the particulars about wagner and his publishing career his editing career all the various stuff that he's done outside of actually writing uh so yeah so there, there you go you can just go back and check all that stuff out right well and um yes getting into into the story too like that part that you read like one thing i was struck by is the beginning of the story much much like the last one you remember how like at the beginning of of um in the pines he's talking about like uh like we were talking about how that little prologue almost sets like a mission statement for wagner's work yeah, yeah and definitely. i feel like and i feel like that's like um brought forward into this book uh into the story i mean in a sense that we're talking about a an environment that's like decayed you know what i mean like it's got this um Des desolate deserted decayed like environment and it's kind of setting it all up with a similar type of uh type of energy is what we got in the last story you know yeah that seems to be a recurring theme especially in these uh first two entries these first two short stories there's uh you know this kind of long lingering view of uh it gives you a very good idea about what grand avenue in knoxville looks like and according to our mutual friend, uh, it, this actually is uh, is pretty much um, what it looks like in Knoxville. You know, Jacob from All Hell, Jacob Kerwin. Yeah, he said that some areas. I guess he uh, they. Um, I I think they've if some of the things that that um, Wagner saw, he says in the in the afterward here they tore down, but other parts of it were similar. But Jacob did say that they've kind of. Um, gentrified a little bit in the past you know recent history so it's not it's not quite as like desolate and kudzu like it's kudzu everything over everything as it once was you know what i mean they but, did something about the kudzu problem in knoxville well, i think i there's i guess there's still areas of with kudzu or however it's pronounced like around but uh yeah they kind of cleaned up some of those neighborhoods you know because 
the downtown's been a little gentrified than it was back then. But I mean, you can still walk down that avenue. I actually um, went on onto Google and was like looking at, you know, the avenue and everything. It's like oh, outside of downtown Knoxville and kind of given a. I tried to find some historical pictures. It was kind of hard, but I found some historical pictures of, of Knoxville in the 70s and stuff so that kind of give that feeling, you know? Now, what, what are the, the overarching kind of theme in this book, and it's, this might be something that people from the South, particularly this part of, part of the country, um, the, the whole kudzu uh, overrun uh, is something I feel like like people from that part of the country really resonate with that because uh, that that sort of plant originated in Asia and was brought to this country. So it wasn't an indigenous plant and it just sort of ran wild. And uh, have you ever seen this stuff in person, Carl? Uh, yeah, I've been, I've seen it in the South, like um, just covering over like certain areas or it's just co covering everything. Like yeah, some of those pictures, um, I was looking up the pictures and you see some of these pictures and I was thinking like, um, I had a thought like you'd ever read, have you ever read the old like William Hope Hodgson stories with like the, the fungus that like overtakes people and they become like fungus people and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That, that uh, I was, I was going to, I wasn't going to use that example exactly, but the idea of strange plants and fungus is like a very common archetype in weird fiction and cosmic horror, you know what I mean? Like some bizarre funguses and growths and things like that. So yeah, that's, I, I definitely pick up what you're saying on that. Yeah. Like I was almost thinking you could write a weird fiction story about this, uh, kudzu like, cause it grows on everything. It grows. Like, I read that it grows, um, a foot a day and yep. which is crazy. And, um, I was thinking, oh, what if it like overtook your body and like you're like you're having kudzu grow out of your flesh or something like that? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely it's like a Ben Wheatley kind of. I could see Ben Wheatley making a movie out of something like that. You know, right? Like just like I'm sure. I wonder if if it would be it would be a good story. I think it might look kind of silly in a movie, but I think he could pull it off. You know what I mean? Like. All of a sudden, well, did, did you see? Night, <laughs> did you see that movie Gaia? Uh -uh. It's, uh, it's not. It wasn't the best movie, but there was like, uh, it kind of dealt with like fungus and mushrooms growing out of people, and and uh, the imagery. I think the imagery like that could be kind of cool. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, anybody who like, you know, obviously here in Colorado, like, uh, I guess you could say like mold and fungus and stuff like that aren't really a that bigger problem and you know we don't really have like a lot of really overgrown areas like with something like kudzu or something but um i can imagine being in a more humid environment like where if you get some mold in there like it's horrific like that mold will take over like you're in a basement or something all of a sudden there's this mold over everything like it's a pretty horrifying proposition you know what i mean so so kudzu came to the United States in 1876 as uh, the sort of ornamental flora that some maniac brought over here and just thought it would be okay to, and that, that's that's like a, an age old issue where people bring something that's not indigenous to the, the land and there's like no natural predators or the environment is such that this particular thing just runs out of control. So that was the, uh, the case with kudzu. And uh, it's known as the vine that ate the South. <laughs> sounds like a name of a story 
So it does. Yeah. The, um, yeah, I didn't know all this about kudzu until, uh, to reading the story. So it's like, I, cause I was, he's talking about kudzu and I'm like, uh, I didn't know what that was off the top of my head. So I had to look online and then I realized, Oh, it's that funky like vine. Um, also like, like my friend, my friend Ken, I do my radio sh uh, station and my shows with, he moved out of South Carolina and out in South Carolina, they also have the English Ivy. That's like a non-indigenous species. That's like, well, like strangled trees and like, they're like dealing with that in their, in their yard right now. So there's a lot of those kinds of plants that have kind of gotten out of control, like invasive species. And they're like, just like, you know, killing trees and killing and like native plants and all those kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So we know uh, where summer ends. It's uh, let's let's run through the characters here and uh, kind of talk about that. So we've got uh, we've got John Mercer, who's a uh, a student. Now the interesting th interesting thing about Mercer is that he started out studying uh, psychology, which is very similar to uh, to Wagner. Wagner actually completed his degree as a psychiatrist before getting into uh, into writing. So there might be a little bit of a autobiographical uh, twist to this uh, character. And uh, similar similar to Wagner, Mercer pivoted to uh, to art. He became uh, went into fine art and abandoned his career as a psychologist or psychiatrist. And also notable, he carries a Derringer, a two-shot Derringer, because he was uh, mugged at one point uh, for protection. It reminds me of the uh, uh, in From Beyond when um, when uh, the character in From Beyond's like, I, good thing I carried this revolver ever since I was mugged in East Providence. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I wonder if that's like a little nod to to that. You know, it could be, man, because so much of these guys, you know, there's so much crossover, you know, between all these different writers, and they all pay homage to each other in different ways. And, you know, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, connections between all this stuff. Um, we have his girlfriend, Linda, who um, she's kind of like the, uh, she helps move the plot forward. Like she's not one of the main characters, but she's there to kind of fill in the gaps and keep the narrative going, I think. Uh, the the other member that I think the story really is between Mercer and Grady. Who's um, this alcoholic uh, ex ex you know military vet guy who lives not not so much in a junk yard but in a junk house like he inhabits this house that is his his own home yet a collection of all this different stuff miscellaneous that he's accumulated and is selling exactly and I guess he um, we find out that he. Uh... He used to own like a more like legitimate like type of, uh, I guess almost like antique type of store or something like that, you know. Like, but then as time went on, you know, when the neighborhood deteriorated, he just kind of, you know, inhabits the space. And he, he used to work with I forget what the other guy's name was that Morney Morney that disappeared yeah. and he who disappeared by the time the story starts. But they had um been like tearing down like uh kind of going through and like tearing everything out of houses that were condemned and and then just burning them down basically like and getting paid by the by the city to do it essentially you know so they've been like kind of like they're kind of like i've met people like this like particularly there's a lot of people like this like um 
in like I guess areas like that or at the south or you've seen I've seen stuff about people like this in Detroit. Any area that's kind of run down where they're kind of like people who um live off of uh off of like uh scavenging essentially. They're scavenging like valuable or non valuable items that they can then try to sell, be like junk like metal, you know, whatever. And they yeah. you know, this guy kind of seems to sell to a particular kind of collector which our main character seems to be which is a kind of person who likes to buy kind of like junk as like decoration for their house you know which i think kind of ties into the kind of 70s like you get the sensation that are that mercer and his girlfriend are kind of like real 70s like hipsters in a way you know like absolutely man yeah, uh, that, I was. Yeah, yeah. Mercer. One one of the subplots in this thing, which actually connects him to Grady, is he's trying to buy this mantelpiece for this apartment that he and Linda are renting, which I find you know kind of interesting since they're renting it. They don't actually own the place, but they're trying to improve. Yeah, you, know, I mean, you live in. If I'm mean, I live in an apartment right now, I'm not trying to like you know buy things and upgrade my surroundings because I don't own this place, you know, and it's, I just think it's interesting that Mercer has this kind of aesthetic where, uh, yeah, he wants to improve his surroundings. So he's fixated on getting this mantelpiece from, uh, from Mercer up uh, from, uh, from Grady, but it's uh, too much money, you know, like he's kind of living, living lean, you know, he's a grad, he's not a grad, actually, he's not a grad student. He's finishing out his bachelor's degree. I uh, just changed majors, you know, money's kind of tight. And, uh, and yeah, they're they're very much like uh, these kind of seventies. They smoke weed, you know. His girlfriend Linda's into like organic food and everything, you know. They make a note of saying that. Well, and then uh, her favorite album is Fleetwood Mac. He he mentions that specifically. Um, and I figured out which album it was because at one point in the um, story, segment how it gets stuck on the needle, gets stuck on the part that says, "I like I think it's like I am afraid" or something like that. Right, and that's the last song in their self-titled album. The album it's called Fleetwood Mac. It's got like landslide and everything on it. Interesting. So it's like the the post blues Fleetwood Mac. It's like the Stevie Nicks version of the band. Exactly. Yeah, it's that that self-titled album. It's got like landslide and a few other songs. And uh, I also figured out because of timing, because the story is set in nineteen seventy six, I think, and that album came out in that year. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. She's also a big Bob Dylan fan too, which uh, Mercer seems to take a uh, exception to. Yeah, he does not like Bob Dylan very much. <laughs> I don't blame him. Actually, I'm not a big Dylan fan either. Yeah, I'm not a huge, huge Dylan fan. I, I liked him a lot when I was a kid, mostly because my dad liked a lot, a lot of Dylan. But I suppose as an adult, I've almost never put on, <laughs> purposely listened to Dylan. You know what I mean? <laughs> the thing that I find interesting about uh, Mercer is that. The, the records that he does have are these uh shadow radio plays yeah like i know the shadow that. which yeah. i thought was awesome i actually would love to have that stuff on vinyl that'd be cool to have things like that when i was a when i was a kid my dad got me um collection of them on tape it was like this little box set of the shadow on tape but of course nowadays like um you know you could listen to them all on uh on uh spotify or whatever which i've done i've listened to i like listening to those old shadow uh radio dramas they're great and um but yeah it would be cool to have it on vinyl like a nice like vinyl collection of like some of the best of the, the episodes so yeah yeah lamont cranston right that's the shadow is that his name yeah lamont cranston who knows what <laughs> lurks in the heart yeah was it who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men <laughs>
the so Saturday awesome. Knows. <laughs> so yeah, so there's this whole drama going on between Mercer and Grady, and uh, you know he needs to get this mantelpiece. It's too much money, like all this other, you know, yeah, just kind of like personable stuff. They seem Grady seems to be kind of a like a recluse. We find out later that he's a uh, a vet. Um, it's the kind of guy who, like drinks and falls asleep in his clothes and that sort of stuff. You know, yeah, he's a, a World War II vet. We should specify some, right? World War II veteran that plays in because uh, there's there's some uh, culturally insensitive uh, terminology that gets uh, <laughs> that gets <laughs> utilized later on in the story. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of terminology that that somebody who was a World War II vet probably would speak like. You know what I mean? So yeah absolutely man you know i mean and that and that's kind of the thing it's it's um you know any guys out there who aren't familiar with this uh this particular genre like these kind of pulpy writing you know it's kind of from a different era and you also, you also have to not carry in your uh your cultural norms of the new millennium into mid-20th century fiction you know there's a, there's a lot of insensitive things that are being i mean no one listening to this show probably needs i don't probably don't need to say that stuff but, <laughs> but it's also uh, i just also feel like you know it's part of the story there's it's painting a picture of a character and in some ways it's interesting because linda her character is kind of the diametric opposite to um to mo the more conservative regressive attitudes that grady has you know like she's this like comments about pesticides and how that kills other you know other things besides the the you know the pests and you know she's into organic food and like i know it's the second time i mentioned it but she seems to be this very modern woman progressive you know 70s kind of chick you know well one thing that really also highlights that which is kind of a, a thing that's mentioned in it that um I don't think a lot of people will get, but he talks about, oh, you've been reading that Foxfire book too much. And the thing is, I know exactly what that is because my parents had the the whole set of Foxfire books. Like they're like these like series that came out in the seventies and the eighty. I think up until the eighties, that was all about like natural living and like living off the land and like it's kind of real like you know it was like it was like a mixture of stuff like because you know they'd have like. um kind of old time like solutions you know to to living off the land and living you know old more old-fashioned ways of living like that you know like it was real popular for like a lot of the hippies who wanted to go live in the mountains and stuff like you know because my my i guess like in a way cause my parents kind of did that because they went up and lived in the mountains of in the house of no electricity and what running water and stuff you know what i mean wow. like, <laughs> i didn't know that yeah we lived like that a little bit once a kid so yeah, so they had all these Foxfire books, like so. I mean, I, I, I know what those are. Like I've read some of them when I was a kid, so I like I noticed that. And I was like, that's a real '70s like men like mentioned that not everybody's probably gonna get reading the story. You know what I mean? <laughs> I that slipped right by me. I had no idea about that. Yeah, because she's like talking about oh, we should go live in the mountains and up in a cabin somewhere, and he's all like, oh, you're just reading. Um, too much of a Foxfire book, and I was like, "Oh, that's funny." Like, I haven't thought about that book in a long time. <laughs> you, you know what? That that's um a, a very interesting thing. It just, and I think it speaks to Carl Edward Wagner himself, like the guy. You know, I feel like you know Mercer is kind of like I feel like is is like a cipher for him. You know, and uh, you know Mercer is like, and I'm going to say that as an analog for Carl Edward Wagner because I. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about him, but I've seen that documentary, The Last Wolf, and you know, I've read about him and all that sort of stuff. And um, he's like one of those guys who 
kind of sat like right in the middle of what I think a lot of the stuff that was going on in the seventies, you know, he probably identified with like regular people, like your kind of average guy, but he also identified with these kind of like progressive people, but like wasn't too far in either direction. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I know you're trying, no, you're trying to say it all exactly. Like it was kind of like that kind of viewpoint. That was kind of how my dad was. It was kind of like in that, that middle point where he liked a lot of that kind of like, progressive like um hippie type stuff but he also kind of didn't you know he was like still like rooted in you know like he liked the shadow and stuff like that you know he's like rooted in like this kind of older stuff as well so it's kind of like in this kind of weird middle point and i could see that with wagner a lot yeah so we made reference to uh Rady's partner morney and um at the at the time of the story he's already been been found dead lacerated and like cut up really badly yeah, like and, uh, they, like they've like skinned them, skinned them essentially, like with so yeah. many. Yeah. And uh, Grady makes uh, a statement about that. Um, he's like, "You cut a man if you're just fighting. You stab a man if you want him dead." So I mean, you know, bringing some of his like combat, you know, uh, vernacular into the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> the um. And they, they say that they found him, like, I think in the kudzu or something like that, right? Like, so yeah. 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 And, uh, the, uh, the kudzu, there's also a point in the story where um, the girlfriend, like, she, Linda, or Linda, right? Linda, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, she's, like, posing uh, for Mercer, and then she feels like something's watching her, but he looks out and it's just, like, the kudzu, you know? But that's, right. But that's, like, a little... Uh, not a what ends up happening so <laughs> yeah it's kind of foreshadowing you know and it, and it, i mean to be honest with you the story itself like the actual story beat for beat is like pretty simple really it's more just the atmosphere and the sense of anxiety that sort of permeates this whole thing yeah and i really liked the the environment because it is this rundown like you know very like depressed like area like it's a downtown area that's been like basically abandoned, you know, and uh, I mean, like where Grady lives, for example, is like, you know, he's the only person who lives there. It's like he's like living in this like abandoned, you know, building and like with just lots with like torn down houses and stuff around him with like, just this kudzu taking over everything. You know what I mean? So it's like this really desolate, definitely kind of dangerous environment. Like it makes you, you know, it's. It's kind of like the, a similar type of environment that you can imagine, you know, parts of Detroit or all these kinds of things. And I think those kind of environments really work well for this kinds of uncanny stories. Like, you know, like if you read like some of the Ligotti stuff set in Detroit and everything, like you kind of get that same type of feeling here. Yeah, actually, uh, it's old, old school Detroit. I mean, Detroit's a little bit different. It's, it seems to be improving, you know, like, I guess I've been there in a, in a few years, but yeah, one time I remember I was in Detroit and we were um, we played a show and we plugged in the hotel address into Waze, you know, which is the gives you the directions like in a straight line to where you're going. Doesn't really give you the probably maybe not the directions that you would prefer to have, you know, that were like on major roads. Right. <laughs> so it took us through like this area that had no street lights and there was like you can see where the the roots were like growing up through the street and everything and it was just like abandoned and just desolate and that's what i imagine uh grady's places in an area like that where maybe 
half of the streetlights have been like knocked down and you know it's dark at night and that kind of thing exactly it gives you a real eerie feeling and and um and then there's this this eerie feeling from the encroachment of the kudzu which almost seems to be purposefully growing you know what i mean and um basically we 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 started out we were like given like the kind of information about like mercer's going trying to like liquor up grady like and everything trying to get a he's trying to figure out his best strategy for for getting the mantelpiece for cheap and um then then he leaves and we're introduced to linda and then they go back they go together to grady's and that's when um linda tries to go into the um it was like a shed goes in a shed and uh sees these sees like things that almost look like rats but have like monkey's hands that's how she describes it and then and grady goes in and is like blasts him and stuff <laughs> <laughs> well it, 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 immediately i thought of brown jenkin or something like that you're know, like some kind of like brown jenkin-esque like creature you know yeah <laughs> The, um, yeah, I was like, okay. Um, when I first read, I was like, I don't know. I didn't. I really didn't know where the story was going the first time I read it at all. I'll be honest. Like, <laughs> and uh, like one thing that he mentions is that there's like some type of Grady has like a display case and he has like a skull in there that they call a Jap General skull, but it's like <laughs> obviously like uh, some type of weird like monkey skull or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, that's like the kind of stuff you would see out in like Coney Island and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, honestly, even today, like you you would find weird curios like that. But definitely throughout the 80s and the 90s, if you go out in Coney Island, you'd see some weird, you know, guys selling these like curios, you know, that were allegedly recovered like in ancient Egypt or something. But it's like, you know, like a dog skull or something like that, you know, or a monkey's head. <laughs> you know, or a hand or something like that, you know, and it's like, but yeah, that's kind of the, the vibe that, um, that Grady had with these, uh, with these, these skulls. There's actually, it turned out that I guess there's three of these skulls as we, yeah. as it, it's revealed, but there are none of, none of the skulls are actually none of the things that Grady claims them to be as we discover. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, basically we're introduced to that then um um uh, mercer ends up stumbling on the uh grady had a dog and he says oh he ran off but mercer ends up like kind of stumbling into kudzu and sees the dog like flayed flayed you know what i mean like just like yeah. snap up corpse and he doesn't say anything to anybody because he doesn't want to upset linda or whatever sheriff but, sheriff the dog sheriff the dog yeah, yeah. so you're like oh fuck, like Okay, that's that's not good you know <laughs> and um they go back and um to their to their apartment and everything and then um grady calls calls up mercer and is like uh hey like you want that you want that mantle right like give you know if you give me some money like cash like now like i'm gonna sell it to you he's like i'm i'm selling out i'm getting out of here you know like basically no, I'll make sure you get that because I know you wanted it, you know. So the um of course like Mercer's like, Yeah, I, would, I want that. So he like managed to scrape up some money and go down to Grady's and to get the uh to get the the mantelpiece or whatever, right? Yeah, which is, I I always thought that was kind of funny because it's like 
these, these motherfuckers like have no money at all they can't eat yet they're scraping together money to go and, and pick up this like uh mantelpiece to put in their rented apartment <laughs> which that whole scenario just strikes me as like really <laughs> funny and also kind of like something that i might have done like at one point when i was like 22 years old or something you know it's like oh yeah man, i yeah. gotta get like this piece here to put in this rented apartment you know? <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i definitely probably bought some stupid shit when i was in my 20s like that where you're like i probably shouldn't have gotten that like you know i didn't really need to spend that money right now but <laughs> yeah that's part of what happens in your 20s i think it's funny too because it's the middle of the night too it's not even like i mean it's like grady calls him like 12 at night you know what i mean you're like yeah. okay like and why is he so in a hurry to get the fuck out of there too you know like that's like another thing you know so he and linda go go back over to grady's place and uh, they do the deal, and Grady loans them his truck to transport the mantle back to their place. All right, so they go and they do that, and they're going to go back and return the truck to Grady. So that that's when they, they bring it back. That's when they discover all this stuff. There's, like, another head with, like, the remains of flesh on it. There's, like, a, a pot boiling something something inside the pot is boiling and it's overboiling because they can't initially they can't find Grady you know so she looks in there it's like oh my god he's eating rats right but it turns out that it's not a rat it's that skull the head the defleshed head of one of some kind of creature and that's when we discover like really what lurks inside the kudzu and uh, yeah. you know, great Grady's in his room he's all mutilated beat up and on his last legs and he kind of tells them like what what's actually lurking out there yeah the um he says like the they the japanese like warned him like in um when he was in occupation in japan that there's like some type of creature that lives in the kudzu that like kind of lives like um as you know like in the roots or something like this i guess like you know like they they use the kudzu to kind of like protect themselves they encourage it to grow they kind of direct its growth all those kinds of stuff and then during winter when it gets cold they like dig underground and they like burrow under underground and um and somehow these creatures came over with the kudzu when it came to the united states and so they're there they don't want people to know about them and as soon as people like seem to figure out anything about them they take care of them you know what i mean so yeah so grady was kind of at war with these creatures you know because they they figured out he also indicated that they were intelligent they weren't just like these animals they actually had intelligence and they were scheming and they knew that he knew about them and what their you know their plans were and their their activities so they they were they were scheming against him to get rid of them and that was kind of the whole deal it was like he was kind of at war with them and uh and that night is when they made their move against him exactly so he uh he kind of knew um and, and that makes sense of he seemed like pretty nervous when he saw him earlier in the day right so it's almost like he kind of could see that the kudzu is growing closer and closer and closer to his house like they're gonna try to like take him over or whatever take him out so that's why he's gonna try to get out of there but they struck too fast and they stabbed him you know and uh then he dies like on the bed or whatever and um they try to they try to leave and and um i think the the part at the end when he's describing how they try to get out and they realize that the 
tires have all been put out on the truck and everything is just like it's terrifying you know what i mean <laughs> oh yeah definitely and and then the final the final line in the story is uh you know there's like a hundred of these assailants and he only has two shots in his little puny derringer that he carries on his hip which i thought in some ways is like darkly humorous but in the same sense it's also kind of terrifying knowing that you don't have a fighting chance at all yeah like it's like the final like lines of it are just like i don't know it's just like they really stick with you because it's like um where is it the he just says uh that's right all about them the kudzu erupted from a hundred hidden layers mercer fired twice that's it you know it's like yeah that's how it ends it's like just like kind of horrifying it's very horrifying to be honest <laughs> yeah you know, and, and just two shots that's it and there's like you know all these like creatures like trying to attack him and stuff it's like you know that they're done and you kind of feel bad because he, you know mercer is not a bad guy he's kind of kind of a little goofy like trying to buy this mantelpiece and stuff you know what i mean but he's not he seems like a nice enough guy and you know linda's a nice girl you know like you feel bad that they're getting taken out by these like fucking little kadzu devils you know what i mean <laughs> yeah a little fun fact about uh these like kudzu monkeys is uh they're actually based on a, a southern cryptid you know there's like some sort of um i guess they call them skunk apes <laughs> so it's like uh it's like a southern you know like a bigfoot or like a chupacabra or something like that right yeah i've heard of the skunk apes although a lot of times people seem to use that interchangeably with like sasquatch like a southern sasquatch you know what i mean like they're big but i have heard of some people describing them as these smaller beings as well i mean the south has a lot of like different like cryptids you know yeah like one, one of the things like the more i think about this story is um like how did i were, were these um these little green creature guys I still am trying to figure out how the hell they came over here with the plants. You know what I mean? I don't know either. Yeah. That, <laughs> that was kind of a, I was kind of confused about that too. Like they brought the plants over. It's weird. It's almost like you get the sense that they, that maybe they're actually um, like grown out of the, the plant itself. You know what I mean? Like they're like yeah. plant flesh or something. I don't know. It doesn't, I'm not a hundred percent sure. If, how they could have came over you know that that's the only the only conclusion i can come up with too is that they were they're they're actually plants like they're they're vegetable people or something which wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility with like the logic that they they're ex exhibited in these types of stories you know yeah that was like that was like my big question at the end end of the story as well was like okay how did they get over here it would be i guess a little bit different if they were um maybe like some type of native species that's using the kudzu but it seems like it's implied that they're from the kudzu like that so it's almost like i get the sensation that they're almost like yeah these like kudzu devils like you know like they're like grown out of the kudzu you know what i mean yeah so interesting yeah it's, it's, it's so impressions sure. what, what are your impressions of the story I think overall of the story, I really like the the atmosphere of it. You know, like the 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 um, 
environment, the like, um, what's the word? Uh, the setting I think is really compelling. Like this yeah. uh, desolate, you know, like rundown, like area of Knoxville with the kudzu like, overtaking everything. And, uh, you know, it has a lot going for it. It's definitely a very, like, doesn't waste a lot of time. It does a really good job of building um, characterization. Like, you get to know these characters, like, very easily and very quickly. And, you know, like, they seem like people that we've met. They you know, seem like people that I know, you know, like, in a lot of ways, like, or I've known, you know. So you can kind of relate to the people in the story. So I think which adds to the kind of horrific nature of the story because, like, you know, you feel bad for these people. Like, that they've kind of stumbled into this this situation, you know, and uh, they're paying the ultimate price because, you know, you know they're not making it out alive, you know. <laughs> oh, no, there's no, it's clear that they're not making it out. And, and you know, even Grady is not, um, you know, he's like um, a sympathetic character as well. Because, like, you think of a guy who, you know, survived World War II, you know, um, he comes back home and then there's uh, just, like, his life just declines, you know what I mean? Along with the town that he lives in. And then there's this like encroaching wave of bizarre plant life. And then these creatures that seem to be inhabiting the plant life. And ultimately his end is pretty brutal, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, he's definitely a very sympathetic character and he, he doesn't, you know, he's just like going this guys who's like selling junk out of his house, kind of making ends meet. You know what I mean? Like he's not really like a, he's not a bad guy or anything. So it's like, you know, yeah, maybe he's kind of like a alcoholic, like a little bit low life kind of guy, but he's not like a scumbag or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's just a guy. And so it's, you, you definitely have like sympathy for all the characters in it. One of the things too, that, um, you know, in, 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 um, in the pines, they also talk about desolation and the decline and, you know, things like that and how, a place that had former glory and the state that it's in after like years of neglect. And that definitely carries over into this story as well. But um, the other thing that plays into this story is there's this sense of like things in ruin being reclaimed by like, you know, nature or like, you know, somehow there's like this um, eternal presence that's reclaiming anything that might have been built or you know by man you know like th there's this city that's crumbling and then there's this plant life that's overtaking everything you know and the plant life though though it's not indigenous to that, that area is is natural it's like part of the natural world you know and it's enveloping these constructs that man has created you know yeah that's definitely a big theme in the story i think and uh and I mean, then, and it does completely envelops. I mean, if you look at pictures of the kudzu, it like fucking completely envelops like it places. You know what I mean? Like nothing. You you all you see is fucking leaves. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, nature is like reclaiming these this land, and and um, as soon as people kind of like leave it and um let it go into ruin, you know, and it does have that feeling of past glory. I think that. And I don't, you know, we're kind of going through Wagner as we're going through it ourselves. So I don't know if it's like recurring themes yet with a lot of his work, but I don't know if like this, if he like 
return will be returning even more to this kind of desolation theme. But I mean, I know that in some of the Kane stories I've I've heard that I've heard like being read on the internet, they deal with some of the same things with old desolate like civilizations and stuff. So maybe it's kind of a theme that he likes to return to, you know. Yeah, actually, there there's a, a specific Kane story that comes to mind. That I can't remember the title of it because um, I've just been blasting through like story after story in the last few months. Um, but there's one where Kane, who's a um, you know he's an immortal, so he's been alive for thousands of years, and uh, he comes to the ruins of this city, and he has memories of the city being like an a, a energetic like vibrant place you know and he was just has this like rooting like kind of like feeling while he's standing in the ruins of the city you know right yeah i think um i think one of the stories i read he was like work uh with like this like giant did you read have you read that one that's the one i think yeah the giant yeah. and then they go and they, they he has to get the crown from like this uh inside this cave yeah that's the one yep i've, I've yeah I listened to a reading of that and yeah, they get out of the cave and he's talking about how, what it was like when it was, uh, in, in existence. So yeah. Right. Yeah. And when the giants were like a, um, you know, like, uh, the dominant, like, uh, civilization on the planet, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think that, that, I mean, it's a kind of a common theme with like, I mean, uh, Howard talked about a lot of these types of ideas as well of like the rise and fall of civilizations and nature reclaiming and, you know, the fall into barbarism and back again and everything. And I think definitely Wagner is probably following in those. I think in some ways he's expanding upon that in the horror context more than Howard did. Because, I mean, Howard did touch upon that with like, say, the Black Stone, but in his horror stories, there's not a lot of that in his horror stories necessarily, you know, in the same way that you see with, uh, with Wagner. Yeah, definitely. Well, next up, we got uh, probably one of my favorite Carl Edward Wagner stories, um, Sticks. I think that's the next one in the, uh, in the book. It is. Yeah. Sticks is the next one. So, and um, that was one of the few that I had known before. Um, uh, getting the uh, Illinois Place book. So, um, but it's going to be good to go back and reread it and get ready for that one. Cause I mean, that one's a pretty important story. So, in the oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a lot of it's the thing about it too. It's, it's um, the way that it impacts media in like the last like 20 or 30 years. Like that story, I feel like is, you know, the first time I watched, um, you know, Blair Witch Project or something like that was right around the same time that I I'd actually discovered this story. Um, and it was like, and also the uh, the artist, um, what the hell's his name? Coin, Coin, Coil. Uh, damn. Anyway, with the lattice and all that sort of stuff, it all ties in nicely uh, with the, the those like things made out of branches and sticks that show up in, in the Blair Witch Project. And then later, of course, you know, we have a true detective. And I think all that stuff is connected back to this uh, story sticks that we're going to cover next, next time. Yeah. I'd be curious to see if, if um, the guy who did the production design for, uh, for Blair Witch Project, because uh, Brandon had them on the pod on Horrible 666, like back, while back he had that guy 
Oh, I gotta that. find that episode. Yeah, but he didn't say anything. I don't. He didn't say anything about being inspired by by Wagner. So probably it might just be a coincidence. But you never know. I mean, well, uh, the one yeah. thing I can say is that um, maybe not the production designer, but but uh, Nick Pizzolatto, the guy who wrote, who created um, True Detective, he cites Wagner, of course, Chambers and Lovecraft as like inspirations for the story. You know, right. so I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure that he had notes and direction that he gave to the production designer about stuff that he wanted to have in the movie. Like he probably has like in the script, there's some notes about what these things look like, you know. Yeah, with True Detective, you have a solid link, you know, between season one and Carl Edward Wagner, which is I was actually surprised that like with with when that season came out, you had a kind of rise in, I mean, say king of yellow for example went from being a book that was almost literally impossible to find to being something <laughs> you can get a million different versions of it yeah now like i mean like i remember trying to find king of king in yellow 20 years ago and like not being able to find it even in the library you know what i mean and now like it's like you have your choice of like 20 30 different editions and all these different styles and stuff for that you know and and i think um Season one also is part of the reason why we got the Penguin edition of Lugati. You know, like it had like a, this ramification for a lot of other writers, but I'm surprised that it didn't have the same one for Wagner when Wagner was probably a bigger influence on True Detective than even, you know, King and Yellow and stuff. You know what I mean, really? So it's kind of it's kind of funny. What you know, maybe maybe now if in a lonely place being out, he'll start to get his his just desserts. You know. I hope so. And, you know, I mean, even even just the Southern setting of it, too, like, um, you know, a lot of Wagner's like his horror stories particularly take place in, in like the Mid-South, you know, and of course, uh, True Detective takes place in, uh, in Louisiana. But, you know, there's like that Southern vibe to everything in Wagner's stories, you know, and particularly this one takes place in Knoxville. The um, In the Pines takes place in Tennessee, I believe, or I mean, in, uh, in Missouri, possibly, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think it's Tennessee. Yeah. Tennessee or Missouri, one of the, you know somewhere in that region, the mountains. Yeah, I think, but, uh, I think, I think it's Tennessee because yeah, it's in the Appalachian. So, yeah, and then the uh, just the vibe and the, the the sort of description of these kind of desolate towns. I mean, even even in True Detective, when uh, Russ Cole is like, you know, this looks like the memory of a town. You know, th that's like one of the most Wagnerian parts of the of the. Um, this, you know, he's like talking about, they go to the town and he's like, this, this is like a memory of a town that's like slowly fading, you know, and it's like such in line with all the stuff that we've been reading in these two short stories about how these, all these like structures and constructs of mankind are fading memories, you know? Yeah. And I, with, um, this story also, I think we should probably mention Manly Wade Wellman because, um, again, as w Wagner was, I think he was even in contact with Wellman, and um, and uh, was a, you know a popularizer of Wellman's writings. And Wellman was exactly that, like a weird fiction author who set his stories in the South, you know, in the Appalachians, and so. I could almost see a Wellman influence in this with like the little monsters. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I don't know Wellman that well, but I know that 
his work was like super important for people like Wagner, you know? Yeah. I'm not that familiar with his work, honestly, either. I just, you know, there's like been a couple of collections here and there that I picked up. He's someone that I definitely want to get back, get deeper into though, for sure. Yeah. I never really, I guess because, uh, I don't know. I just never really gone deeper. Like I, um, and then I have like the Hellboy crooked man, like two shot that, that, um, that he did inspired by woman. And, you know, I've heard like, um, HP podcraft covered Wellman some, yeah. so, you know, so I kind of have an idea of how Wellman's stories go, but he does often encounter these kind of weird creatures like that, but it's a totally different. The one thing about Wellman and Wagner that's totally different is the ultimate feeling. Like there's a kind of, I don't know, you know, Wellman stories, he goes and silver John goes and encounters this stuff and then he defeats it and he keeps moving on. You know what I mean? With, with Wagner stuff, there's more of a dark, brooding like pessimism going throughout i mean like you know this is a pretty pessimistic story like our main characters are fucking you know dog meat at the end you know what i mean like and yeah <laughs> like it's definitely not not like fun you know <laughs> well we're two we're two for two right now uh it's so far with these uh short stories uh where the main character doesn't make it out alive so <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so it's like I feel like uh, that's definitely a, um, and some kind of running thing of Wagner's a, you know, a little bit more of a brooding kind of darkness throughout his work, you know. And and at the same time, there also he injects a little bit of humor in there too. Like there's like a, it's interesting because it's, in one hand, it is very dark, it's very brooding, but then there are these lighter moments. Like his like uh, Mercer's interaction with uh, Linda is very light, you know. And her character is pretty light, you know, it's a contrast. And I guess through that, when the evil stuff happens to them, it's even more impactful, I guess, you know? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's positioning them as just pretty like normal people, you know, like they're like interacting and kind of joking of each other and, and whatever, you know, and it's like, you know, listening to Fleetwood Mac, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, but, you know, making a charcoal drawing of her naked, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's like a, that's like a plot point. And then it comes up a couple of times where he's like trying to yeah. like draw her. <laughs> that's like a very seventies thing too. It's like, you know, sketching like naked women and stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm going to sketch my girlfriend naked basically. <laughs> <laughs> all right man so uh so that's episode two man we we got that one done and um the next one i'm really looking forward to man that's that's going to be uh an epic uh story i believe to cover yeah i agree i mean like i really like the story i think i liked in the pines even better because it had a bit more of like an emotional impact you yeah. know what i mean like i can't i don't know there's something a little bit Heavier. I did like the story a lot, but I'm really looking forward to hitting sticks. It's also a longer story as well, so yeah, it'll be uh, a little bit more in depth to cover. Yeah, in the pines had real heavy emotional context. You know, it's like, you know, I I have to imagine that Wagner got very personal with like some of his characterizations. You know, and um, yeah, it's hard to say, but you know, this like all the relationship stuff that was going on in in the pines and. Yeah, just like there's a lot of a lot of layers to that story. You know, this one, you know, pretty straightforward, but very you know, the atmosphere was right, you know. Yeah. The one thing I was gonna say earlier that I forgot was when you're saying that Mercer might have been kind of like um 
little bit of a cipher for Wagner himself. When he describes, kind of is described in the story, it almost kind of sounds like probably what Wagner looked like when he was younger. You know, he's kind of like, not like yeah. super muscle, but he's like a bigger guy, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like kind of the way he describes him, the character almost seems like he's describing himself. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, he's not, he's not fat, you know, but he's like stocky, I guess, or, you know, like one of these kind of stockier dudes, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think he definitely inserts himself a lot into into these stories probably i would imagine uh wagner himself like listening to like the shadow you know what i mean like <laughs> he probably put that in like just kind of like how in the previous story he had the guy reading like weird tales you know so <laughs> yeah that's true that's right in the last one there's and he was like kind of denigrating that was like the, that was the humor in that story was he was talking about how this is like i can't believe people read this stuff you know <laughs> yeah it was like in, he, in the pines yeah, he's kind of talking about people who are incredulous or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, the next uh, episode will be uh, on Soul Knox on on uh, Carl's show. So we'll catch you guys next time. Yep. And got us down for, uh, I think, the second last week of, of next month. So. Yeah. All right, man. We'll do it. Cool. Red.